Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week, we're joined by professional comedian, Scott Belfort. Listen in as Scott shares his experience as a stand-up comedian who has traveled all over Canada and the United States. We also get a chance to talk about one of his other passions, baseball, its current state, his hopes for the future, and analytics. Is it helping or hurting the sport? Sit back and enjoy the show. All right, my friend. Well, cheers. Cheers. Thank hey. you very much. <laughs> Let's get a little drink on the go here. You got coffee in there? Little coffee in there. Uh, yeah, of you bet. You, do. you bet, man. I gotta get the I gotta get the brain firing. I got caffeine you, you crisp. Caffeine yes. crisp. You know, I <laughs> had a little bit of a coffee this morning, but uh, but you know what? When in Rome, um, and when you're playing with the big dogs, especially, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta get the neurons. In this firing. metaphor, I'm the big dogs. <laughs> you are absolutely the big dog, my friend. <laughs> And you're drinking a high quality H2O, I see. That's it. right. Oh, that's wonderful. It's important to stay hydrated. That is wonderful. I hear Alberta's H2O is is the stuff of legends. Yeah. yeah. Best water, best COVID numbers. We're the best. <laughs> <laughs> COVID numbers. Yeah. So now what the heck is happening out Alberta way COVID wise? Oh, I mean, man. I don't know. I, I'm, I know that just... everyone's paying attention to Ontario's numbers because of course the whole world revolves around Ontario. That's said sarcastic. Well, we're beating your numbers. We hit 1600 yesterday. Wow. For one day. Uh, we're kind of, what's really bumming me out is like, there's deaths now. So like, there's like, you know, we had 10 deaths last week in one day, which is a lot for one day. You know, it's getting... Getting pretty hairy here. Things are still open, but I can't see that lasting much longer. I think a lockdown, just like you guys are kind of going through, is headed our way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You had mentioned uh, before we came on that you were going to be hitting the gym afterwards. So the gyms are open still at this point in time? No. Okay. Uh, I'm buddies with a guy who, so my one friend and I go to the gym and he's got a key and I probably shouldn't even be talking about this, but yeah. I don't know. I didn't even know you had friends. It's socially distanced. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) My God. There's two of us in an empty gym, you fucking rats. Anyone listening, don't you rat me out. (laughs) I I had no idea I was opening up such a can of worms, but I do love getting this inside track. It's amazing. (laughs) That right there is why you're the big dog, man. I've never walked into a good life here with one other person in it. You know, do you guys work out in the dark or is it, or do you throw Oh the no, we're on? allowed to turn lights on and stuff. It's yeah. Oh my goodness, man. It's the real deal, bud. Lights. Hey. Yeah. Everything. Listen. Heat's on. It's, it's like a real indoor place. Oh my goodness. Like heat and everything. Are you guys, uh, are you guys under uh, any snow yet uh, out there in Alberta? We actually had snow early October and it kind of stuck around. It, we've had some really nice days, but for the most part, winter hit here pretty early. So oh, okay. it feels like winter. You go outside and there's snow on the ground and yeah, feels like winter. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so yeah, heat is, heat is definitely important, especially when it's because uh, it, if you only have two people in the gym, you're, you're not really feeling a lot of, you know, body heat in, in that circumstance. So you, you got to jack up the heat. Yes. Yeah. And your grunts seem so much louder. That's my big thing is I'm like, all right, I'm really nailing my grunts. <laughs> is that the game that you're working on right now? Fit- fitness wise is just really just, working on the just grunts? really getting my grunt noise up to a maximum. That's what I'm what's my max. It's like uh, 10 decibels. Like, <laughs> I don't know what a decibel is, but you know, in, in this scenario. 
I mean, it sounds like it's reasonable. I, I haven't me- measure, measured my uh, my decibels there, but it's definitely a measurement <laughs> of sound from, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, dude, um, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. this. You're week. like, all right, let's get back on the rails here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know what? I think that we've covered pretty much all we can cover with a two-person gym situation. Uh, That's right. And, and I really feel... I feel a little. It's just awkward. time to move on. Yes, it's just time to move on. It's just natural progression of conversations. You know this. Um, yeah. Plus, I really feel that we entered into some some dicey waters with, uh, you know, having a, a skeleton key that opens up a gym that only two people can go to. <laughs> so, I don't I don't want to look a gift horse in the, in the mouth because. If I get, I don't know if you guys have a Alberta, uh, Alberta blog uh, magazine out there. Like we have our like blog TO out here, but yeah, uh, I don't want to read that two men, two local men were busted in a gym that they shouldn't have been in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, only to find out, <laughs> only to find out that you didn't realize that your buddy actually didn't own this key or have the right. To <laughs> yeah, use. That's right. This gym. It, it, it isn't even a gym. It's just, yeah. It's a ghost gym. <laughs> Turns out this gym's never existed the whole time. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, no, but, uh, but yeah, in, in moving along. Uh, no, no, I, I do appreciate you sitting down with me. I, I want to pick your brain on, uh, on a few different things. Um, I'm excited to talk to you, bud. Good, man. Good. And it's good to see your face. Uh, I haven't seen your face in, in, uh, in quite some time. Uh, yeah. As, as you've been moving around the country. I mean, I've been just staying in Ontario. You've been traveling you know, East coast to West coast and, and oh, there's nothing I love more than just packing everything I own into a vehicle and then uh, driving at 2,500 kilometers across the country. I can't stop doing it. <laughs> that sounds like material for days. I mean, you being a comedian, there's got, that's gotta be a gold mine, but that's what, that's kind of where I want to start is, yes. is with you personally. We're going to get into some other thoughts and philosophies along the way. And we'll, we'll do some side tangents as, uh, as is par for the course with this podcast and in conversation in general. But the thing that I want to do is I want to kind of focus on you to start with. Because okay. I, I met you. And when I met you, you were, uh, you're a comedian. You were just on, you were, you know, you were already just getting, starting out. Just yeah. Starting we out. met yeah. like about 11 years ago. First time I ever toured out in Toronto was when we met. That's amazing. You weren't living in Toronto at that point in time, right? You no, had- I was in Edmonton. So I, I started, like, I grew up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. So mm-hmm. that's about five hours North of Edmonton for those out there who don't know. And, uh, I moved to Edmonton and went to radio school came back to Grand Prairie and kind of did my internship at the radio station there. Then I wound up moving up north to high level. So already I was kind of getting used to moving. I, I blame how uh, little of a mental block I have with it for just not being able to stop myself. I don't know what my problem is sometimes. Like there's a amount <laughs> of times I look back, I'm like, I've moved a lot and it's a lot of work and I've got to stop this. Like, <laughs> That's, Yeah, mo- moving's no fun, man. Yeah. So I was in Edmonton. That's where I started comedy. Um, I was working in radio in Grand Prairie and needing to MC the comedy show at the casino there every week. And so that's kind of how it started. I didn't tell jokes or anything. I just went up there and was like, hey, this is Scott with Rock 97.7. These things are happening on the radio station. Uh, Kokanee Comedy Night. Here's your starting comic, your opening comic. Here we go. Right. So I did that for months and then i finally decided to try some jokes in there and it went terribly but um 
I got a few laughs and that's kind of the trick, right? Is if you get a few laughs, you get hooked and then some people just can't turn back. And I was one of those people. So I wound up moving to Edmonton to pursue comedy and then moved to Toronto about five years into comedy in Edmonton. Uh, spent five years in Toronto, moved to Halifax, about two years there, moved back to Calgary. So again, just zigzagging across the country. And that's, and that's where you stand now. That's, that's right. bringing you full circle Calgary, right across Alberta, the country and all circle. back full circle. So it's interesting because you started out in radio and, and then you said you started to write some things you were emceeing, of course, which always leads, mm -hmm. you know, to an opportunity to test out material, but were you always interested in going into comedy or was that just a default of working at the station? It's kind of funny because there's a yes and a no answer to this. Nice. My mom actually pulled out, this was recently something that she had saved from when I was in like grade five. And one of the things, it was this questionnaire. And one of the questions was, what do you wish to be when you grow up? And I put stand-up comedian, which I do not remember doing that. Wow. So stay, I do remember when I turned 10 years old, my parents let me stay up on Sunday night to watch A&E's Evening at the Improv. Oh, and okay. it was a stand-up show that ran every Sunday night at 10. And of course, until I was 10, like my parents were like, no, you go to bed at eight, you go to bed at nine. Like, and the one day of the week they'd let me stay up was Sunday to watch stand-up. And I loved it, man. But your goal to be a stand-up comic when you grow up in Grand Prairie, Alberta, like it felt very similar to saying that I could be an astronaut or I could be a rocket science. Like it didn't actually seem valid. It didn't seem realistic. It was just like a pie in the sky. What do you want to be if there was no reality? And I'd be like, stand-up comic, right? <laughs> Is that so just because there's like, there's there wasn't a lot of people that well, you knew was, that were... The entertainment industry wasn't a thing in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Like the whole reason that town existed was agriculture and natural gas. And it's still that way to this point, you know, like it was farmers and oil field workers. So it's not that there was no arts, but there was definitely a void of artistic voices. So it just didn't seem like an attainable thing, just like being an astronaut. Like, sure, yeah. people can say you can be an astronaut, but none of us can fucking be an astronaut. What are we talking about? Like, <laughs> <laughs> go to space? Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> and that's that's what being a stand-up comic felt like. So until I really, like when I went into radio, it was because I did have a, a real interest for entertainment. And what I didn't understand until I tried stand-up for the first time is that that void was not even being close to being filled with radio, you know, like especially terrestrial radio where a lot of it's owned by major corporations now, Rogers and Jim Pattison and all these, I mean, the radio stations in Canada, there's about six corporations that own them all, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes very cookie cutter and a lot of it's based on where you can save money. Uh, there's a lot of voice tracking it's called. So a lot of these shows aren't even live anymore. And that way you can hire two DJs, have one in the morning, one in the afternoon, their voice tracking for another market. And it's really been in a shrinking industry. And a lot of the jocks that do survive are what they call either liner jocks. So they've got a great voice, a great rhythm. They're nice to listen to. They're short, they're concise, they're well edited. There's not a word wasted. And there's a definite skill to that. But as for creativity, not really what they're after, right? They're more after brevity and moving the show along. And they already have, they have their cookie cutter idea of what works. 
and they stick with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I was kind of given the opportunity to have no rules, which stand up is, you can kind of do whatever you want, say whatever you envision is funny and see what happens there. And then the instant gratification of comedy is what really hooked me. Right. Because you don't know if you're being funny on the radio or if you're just being an idiot yeah. that everyone's like, oh my God, this is why I changed the channels. Right. Like, <laughs> and I'll be honest, sometimes it's not cool to find out that a joke's not funny. You know, sometimes that instant gratification works the other way, but I do love just knowing instantly if I'm succeeding or not. And there's something about stand-up comedy that can't be compared to with almost any other kind of art form. Like you just kind of know I'm doing it well or I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's actually an interesting point that you bring up because uh, being around comedians now for the past, uh, you know, 11, 12 years uh, through our mutual friend, yes. uh, Mr. Neil W. Rhodes, uh, who is uh, <laughs> who is definitely the reason why you and I uh, became friends you know was was meeting through him and yes. just getting that insight into the creative process from writing a joke to going out there and working it out mm -hmm. completely exposing yourself in front of people who most of the time don't want to hear what you have to say uh, mm -hmm. it's it's such a such a fascinating process to me because on the flip side of that I have friends that are funny and I guess they're considered and there may be a better term for it, but they're considered like kitchen comics, right? Know, those, those people yeah. who could just tell jokes and that's it. And, and so now you've actually introduced something new to me, which is the, the radio uh, host, which, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're, if you do sneak in a joke there or if you're entertaining, that's fine, but it's, it's nothing like comedy. So no. how do you then, how did you decide that you were going to jump from being a radio host to comedy? Like you, did you just take that upon yourself to start working in and writing jokes? It's funny. There's way more frustration with where I was at in life involved in my decision to get into comedy than I even realized at the time. I grew up in Grand Prairie it was my hometown. And I'm sure a lot of people can attest to the fact that when you're doing anything in your hometown at a certain point, sometimes you feel like you've outgrown it. I'm not, I'm not like putting any sort of uh, ego into this. I don't think I'm better than Grand Prairie or any of that things, but the goals that I had didn't work in Grand Prairie. Right. And I, I mean, even people living in Grand Prairie is going to tell you, yeah, if you want to be a comedian, obviously you got to get the fuck out of Grand Prairie. Like there's not a comedy scene. There's no shows you can do. There's nothing you can do. So I was in radio and I was trying really hard to get a job in a major market, they call it. So that would be someplace like Edmonton or Calgary or even a Regina or Saskatoon where they've got 250,000 people, just more listeners. There's ratings. There's more opportunity for you to move up the ranks. Whereas Grand Prairie, I felt I'd kind of played to the max there, you know, like I'd spent five years between there and high level in radio and was just ready to number one, leave my hometown and number two, move up the radio ranks. And I remember I had this big interview to be the morning show host at a competing station in Grand Prairie, which was a big step up. And it would have, I would have been making an actual, you know, living in a decent, uh, decent pay and a lot of things. And I wound up not getting that job and I'd kind of hit a wall and I was enjoying stand up, and I wished out and I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. So what I did was I, quit my job and I moved to Edmonton. My brother at the time was managing a patio furniture store. So he allowed me to come and work in the warehouse with him Monday to Friday. I was out every single night in Edmonton 
basically figuring out what made me funny mm. because I, I had a trouble where I was very scripted when I first started. And that, that was something that came from radio. Like radio did a lot of good for me because it taught me how to write. So a lot of times when I would um, be out in public and something funny would happen, I'd write it down. I'd have a notepad on me and I'd mark that down because in radio, you're constantly trying to come up with stuff that relates to people and that you can quick little quips because you're on the air every single day for dozens of breaks a day. Right. So you, you kind of need to try to amass uh, content if you would. And that, that really helped me in standup because I was able to write it all down. And then what I would do is I would script it out. And I found that it was, I was too scripted. Like the first year or two, I really felt like I couldn't break those reins of my script off. Like the, I, the chains that was the mental block that I couldn't do it without going word for word what I was saying, which made it difficult for me to show my personality, right? Which is something that also was kind of a hindrance from radio because they do wish you to like be very brief, very scripted, very like get the info out and there's no need to, and there isn't in radio. There's no need to drag something out an extra 15 seconds for no reason when you're not saying anything. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times in a joke, yeah, you might need to build a joke up for 30 seconds before you start getting laughs, right? So there's like a, a time for setup and you need to figure out the right wording and there's a naturalness to it where is it something that I would actually, the character of Scott Belford on stage, does that like kind of match up with what's going on? Mm -hmm. So it took me a long time to kind of figure that out. Like I'm at a point now where probably 50% of the things I put on paper are actually funny and I do get laughs right away. I'm not saying that they're finished products, but you know, my, my fail rate is so much better than it was, but that's because like, I was one out of 20 jokes that I'd write that would hit when I first started. Cause I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Like, of, course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes total so, sense. So when you say that stand-up comics have a way about them, it's almost like problematic, <laughs> you know, like yeah. the fact that we just don't quit to keep seeing, you know, like a one out of 20 rate, like that's anyone who did that would be like, no, I don't need this much, this much failure in my life. Like, <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, and, and the one thing that I always found interesting as well is in finding your voice and finding out, you know, your delivery and, and you're at the open mics, you're getting like five, seven minutes. And yeah. really your ultimate goal, most of the time, the comedians that I've spoken to, I'm sure that you're no different is, is getting that, you know, 45 minute, the half an hour, 45 minute hour sets. Yes. And, and that you're not doing setups and punch all the time. You're not just, you know, jotting down an idea and then delivering that. That's, there is a lot of buildup to that. So how do you make that transition when you're doing five to seven minute sets to building out a joke that could potentially be five and seven minutes on its own? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think Toronto comics would probably be a little bit um, more the comics to to ask that question to, because where I first came up, I started in Edmonton, where there's very little industry, I guess is the word I'm after. There isn't the television opportunities. There isn't the, um, the radio opportunities even that you would find in Toronto, which is kind of the Mecca for comedy in Canada. But what Edmonton did have was a corporate sector where if you had a clean 
30 minutes, 45 minutes, you can make some really good money. It had a lot of road work. So there was a lot of one-nighters, they call them, which is, let's say there's a show in Grand Prairie at the casino, right? There is. So Calgary and Edmonton Comics make the trek up there every single Wednesday to play the casino there. And there's, there's dozens of these throughout Western Canada. So you can kind of be a road comic where you're making money and maybe the industry's not noticing, but you are starting to make money at it. And that's kind of where I started. So, and there's, there's a joke in Canada too, like Alberta and Saskatchewan comics are kind of born doing 30 minutes, like whether it's good or not, you're starting at 30 minutes because there's not as many comics here. And if you are funny in any sort of way and have a car, then you're being sought after to open on the road. Okay. So I had a car and I had a funny 15 minutes and that 15 minutes. And then I'd go up and do my unfunny 15 and would seem like, boy, this guy's really mediocre. Right. And it was just cause I was over my, you know, I was over my head right. and that happens a lot out West where there's comics that are forced to do time that they probably shouldn't be doing, but it makes you grow too. And it does kind of put in perspective. And I, I feel this way about Canada in general, but especially about Western Canada, it, it makes it so no show matters. Like mm. if, if you bomb in Fort St. John, British Columbia, I mean, that sucks for the crowd for the one time, but like, they're not going to remember you. You're going to be able to go back and do that show. They still need comics and there's no industry there. You're not being judged. It's a great way to, as you kind of put it, develop an act, right? Cause it's one thing to have an hour worth of material. And it's another thing to have that hour as an, a working act where the segues flow and you can always tell a really good act when at the end of their 45 minute set, you're like, boy, that kind of felt like one long story or like that kind yeah. of felt like one cohesive chunk of material. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you actually start breaking down the jokes, there's no real cohesiveness, right? Like a lot of comics is a joke salad who have kind of figured out a way to kind of bind it all together and give it a, a feeling and make it an act and make yeah. it saleable. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's the that's the big difference. I mean, obviously, you started out in Alberta and out Western Canada, so you can't know what it would be like to start in Toronto. But you did then come to Toronto, and yes. in some ways, that had to be like starting. It's a new chapter at the very least. So, it was like starting over. It was, sure. So, uh, how is that trend? Like, how did you find that transition then from coming out from out west? I was really frustrated with Toronto at first. It took far longer for me to kind of be accepted in the scene and accepted might be the wrong word, but to start making headway in the scene where I'm getting shows and getting stage time that I deserve, you know, uh, there's a lot of stage time to be had in Toronto, but a lot of them are draw show up, go up. They're in basements. There's no audience members. It's really difficult to test material because you're sitting in front of, there's like, you know, 12 to 20 comics waiting for their turn to play on the microphone mm. and you don't get a good read. Cause really most comics, once you're a few years in anyways, you start to understand joke math, like just kind of the, the reasoning behind what's what makes something funny. So these guys will sit in the room and when a comic delivers a joke, they'll have their arms crossed and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was funny. That was good. That was funny. It's like, great. So glad that after my set, you could come up to me and be like, hey, that that thing you did about this, if I had any sort of fucking soul in me, I would have laughed. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, that, that's a massive difference between playing for professionals or people who want to be professional and mm. understand the industry as opposed to the audience that you're actually hoping to perform in front of. Right. Yeah. You had mentioned before that that comic math. What do you exactly mean by comic math? Well, I. 
basically by comic math, I just mean there is math to developing your voice. So kind of figuring out your rhythm and what makes you funny and what kind of intonation or if you tend to raise your voice at a certain point of a punchline or even just the misdirection of it all. What, what makes your pausing and misdirection funny? And so once you kind of start to figure that out, and that's all I mean by the joke math is there's always kind of like an equation to what makes something funny, mm-hmm. whether it's put something in there they didn't see coming at that time and that inspires laughter or you build something up to, oh, and then it's goofy or whatever it is, right? Right. So a lot of times when you, and it takes comics, this is why sometimes you see comics blow up at 45, 50, because it takes 20 years of them doing it to seem infallible, Mm -hmm. to have this ability to take anything and kind of make it funny. And a lot of people get shit for that, but you watch some of those top comics like Joe Rogan and Bill Burr. And yes, it's also their style a little bit, but they're so good at comedy at this point that they take ideas and things that they're like, it's going to be incredibly difficult to make this funny. And then they try and write a joke around it. So it's it's sometimes these controversial comics. I don't know. I, I don't even get the feeling they're that controversial. They're just bored, right? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. I, I think that's that's the thing that I've always found interesting about comedy is that it, it's not even about um, being a magician on stage and and thinking about words in a way that you've never heard spoken before it is about spinning a yarn and having a perspective and that's the thing that i've always found fascinating about comedy but it it is interesting that there's so many different types and styles like the storyteller or the setup and punch or you know the misdirection and for yourself do you classify yourself as a specific type of comic? Not really. Okay. I write, I write all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, if I've like, I, I know what I struggle to make funny. Like mm. I do, I do know my weaknesses and I do tend to play to my strengths, which I think everyone should obviously mm. play to your strengths. Um, I used to think I was more of a storyteller, but I love telling a good like setup punch. You know, I love a good, sure dick joke that has no real relevance to my life you know like yeah. you know just you don't have to go up there and thing. talk about your own dick right like yeah. just little stupid stuff comes to me all the time that i think is funny that i'll throw in there and i get bored with those little like it's funny because my set has stuff in it that's as old as like six seven years old mm. and it's kind of well well used well crafted i know where the jokes are it's all cohesive sometimes they're 12, 15 minute chunks. It's like, oh, I'm getting into my playground stuff. So this is like 15 minutes of well-polished stuff here that I've been doing forever and is tried and tested and true. And I'm, when I'm getting paid, that's what I normally go to. And then when I go to an open mic, like I, I did a show last Thursday at this high-end Italian eatery and the guy who booked me, I was on him to book me for months. And I, he finally did book me. And after the show, he was like, man, that was great. Like, I'm sorry I didn't book you sooner. I just always saw you and thought you were so dirty. Like, I didn't know, which I used to write way cleaner. And now, like, I'll just write whatever I think is funny. And sometimes when it's dirty, it's dirty. And if it's an open mic, I don't care. Like, mm-hmm. I'll do what's fun and what's what I'm feeling like doing. Like, if I'm getting paid really well, of course I'll lean clean. Like, you know, it only makes sense, right? So, so is, do you tailor it to to the gig as well? Uh, almost like a conversation? No but, I, no, but I am at the point where I've got enough material and I can read a room well enough that I can tailor it on the go, okay. right? Like there's yeah. lots of times where, especially like, again, if I'm getting paid, I pay attention. 
Yeah. And there's no need. I've got enough material that there's no need to, if people aren't into, I don't know, dirty sex stuff, then yeah, I don't have to do that. Like I don't have to get into that. So you've got, you've got a lot of flexibility. Uh, do you, do you ask the venue at all or do you just assume? Nah. Okay. Nah. Like it depends. Honestly, if I'm playing a bar, I normally don't worry about it. I kind of feel like if there's alcohol, if I'm in a venue, that's, if I go in and I'm not like, Oh, this is super classy. Again, it's just reading the room. The truth is everybody loves dick jokes. Dick jokes get so much shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And people act like, Oh, I'm too highbrow for dick jokes. And then every single audience I've ever played the jokes that get the biggest laughs are always the dirty ones are always the ones where sex is involved. Right. Like it's varying levels of innuendo. Right. It's like, how much do you have to disguise this for them to be like, yes, that was a dick joke I enjoyed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's sometimes where shock, uh, shock comedy can, can really separate itself from just a comic who finds things funny and sneaks those in there every once in a mm-hmm. while, as opposed to bursting out of the gate with, uh, you know, this type of sexual position without even, you know, feeling out the audience. It's, it's almost like a middle finger to the audience. This is what yeah. I am. And, and you take it or you leave it. And that's totally fine. But the thing that I've always found interesting about you is that I've, I've always considered you a very cerebral comedian and now thinking oh. about what you've been, what you've said and how you grew up in radio uh, it makes a lot of sense because not that you were mechanical, but you were very well thought out and very well scripted in your yes. comedy when I was seeing you at at first. And and I was able to thankfully see you even grow a little bit before, you know, you you left Toronto and, yeah. and went down east, which we haven't made it down there yet, but we'll we'll get there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've always found that very interesting. And now I have a bit of a basis for why you were that way you were saying that you felt that you were pretty scripted and that, that you were, you know, am I, I, I say cerebral. No, you're I nailing think, it. I think it's hundred percent what I right? felt. Yeah. yeah. And so do you feel that, that you're now past that stage? Like you're, you're a full-time comic now. Like you, yeah, this is I, your I've, gig, right? This is my gig. I've been yeah. making a living at it for almost four years. Which is congratulations, yeah. by the way, Thank that's you. no, that's no that. easy feat. No, it was so. not an easy climb for sure. The longer you do anything, you get better at it and you kind of view your flaws and where you like, I did feel so scripted. And now what I do is I still script it out word for word. I read it once and then I go on stage and I try and kind of work it out how I would work it out. I kind of do uh, bullet points from there. So I'll read it once and then I'll do the bullet points of where the punchlines are. And then I try and get to the punchlines as quickly as possible without losing the integrity of the joke type of thing. Right. Okay. Okay. I mean, it sounds very technical. It's not like, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) no, but there has to be a strategy involved in this process or, or you're just out there, you know, flailing your arms about and, and not that you're trying to have one joke sound exactly like the other or be delivered the exact same way. But if you don't have a strategy in this, how are you supposed to be a pro? There's, there's zero chance of, uh, of creating, a voice and a persona or a presence at all that you can convey to an audience, which I have to imagine that's got to be important to, to develop. Is it not? Oh yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's one of the things too, with, with Canada is such a messed up place to try and be a live entertainer because there's no real system in place to do it. So you spend so long getting an act, becoming funny, figuring out what makes your voice, what you're trying to do. And then you hit like that point where you're like six, seven, eight years into, well, we'll just say stand up because that's my experience. 
And then you're like, oh shit, now I need to learn how to sell this. Like now I need to learn the business end of this because there aren't agents and stuff like that anymore. I shouldn't say that there are, you know, like, and I'll work clubs like Yuck Yucks, you know, they've always got work out there, but if they have a system where you need to be signed and then if you're signed, they give you more work. However, you can only work their club and there's just not enough work out there to make an actual living at it. So if you're a Yuck Yucks comic, you're probably going to need either a part-time job or you need to be good at corporate comedy, right? You need to have side stuff you're doing. So I've, I've always stayed independent and it is frustrating because it is a lot more work sometimes where I'm calling the venues, I'm digging up my own gigs. I'm kind of planning my own tours. I'm doing all that end of the the spectrum, but there's not enough money in it to split it up anymore. You know, like you call a bar, what are you going to get? Like it's, it's 800 to 1200 bucks probably is, is the best you can get out of them. And then, you know, you're driving there, you're paying for gas you know, normally you get your hotels and stuff covered, but you're bringing an opener if you do. And so you need two rooms and I don't know, it's just, you spend so much, like I spent so much time building contacts from one end of the country to the other. And that was another thing with moving to Halifax that helped Mm -hmm. me is I've got a ton of contacts out in the Maritimes now. And the only way to really make a living at this thing in Canada is to be able to tour the country Mm -hmm. and hopefully have, have enough clean material where you can do corporates. And you've kind of learned how to get your foot in the door with some of these corporates and how to dig them up because there's lots of guys out there with guys and gals in Canada with clean acts that don't get corporate work because they don't even know how to go about doing it. Right. So there's a lot of self-taught stuff you need to kind of figure out in the Canadian comedy industry that they've got all set up already, the infrastructure for live entertainment in the States. And it's why we lose so much talent to the South Mm -hmm. is that it's so much easier for a a Canadian comic who's got good time. Like my goodness, the amount of comics I know that aren't even in New York or LA that just have their, their working green card or whatever it is. And touring's not as difficult in the States because all of the venues are so much closer. There's just so much more population. So rather than my weekend in Calgary, be like, okay, well, I've got shows in Saskatoon and Regina. So I drive to Saskatoon, which is eight hours. And then I drive to Regina, which is three hours on top of that. And then home for seven hours. So rather than being 20 hours in a vehicle over a weekend, a lot of these comics can go to the U S and, and put on three hours total, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. cause all these places are an hour apart. So, so th- that's so interesting because obviously we, we know growing up in Canada that a lot of that talent up here, which there is so much Canadian comedic talent that has, so has much. been grown here. Right. Yeah. Um, but they all eventually end up going down to the States. Why, why is it that here doesn't have the infrastructure that, that the, that U S does? Is it? Well, I think a lot of it is mindset. And I think it dates back a long time that Canadians have always kind of had an inferiority complex and it's always kind of been viewed as your benchmark to success is if you made it in the U S so, you know, like there were always super funny Canadians coming out of Canada, you know, like guys like John Candy, iconic Dan Aykroyd, like just iconic members of the comedy community in general in North America came out of Canada and they weren't recognized in Canada until they went and made it in the U S right. There's no system to lift up Canadian comics. You hear it all the time. Jim Carrey, Norm Macdonald, all these guys, these are guys that literally are playing some of the same rooms that I'm playing right now. Regina, Saskatoon, Red Deer, Medicine Hat clubs that, that, you know, where the venue has been there for 30 years running comedy, 40 years. 
Yeah. And some really iconic comics have come through, but there's, it, it, you don't get any credit until you get a credit in the U S and it's just the way that the system's been built here. And it's really frustrating. And I mean, you even see the rhetoric, like Schitt's Creek swept the Emmys, right? That that's what it was. The Emmys, right? Uh, I think so. Some award yeah. show, but yeah, the, the most, yeah. You know what I'm talking I know about, the, right? Yeah. I don't follow and the award shows, And everyone made such a big that. deal about it, right? And they were yes. like, oh, CCBC, it works. If you support Canadian comedy, Canadian comics, this is what can happen. And I love that optimism and that perspective, but it's Catherine O'Hare and Eugene Levy. Like, they're, they're the, like, they're monster comedy people. Like they, they're huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're gigantic and they've been gigantic for years. I mean, when did they start 30, 40 years ago, whenever the case was? SCTV. I mean, Catherine O'Hare was on Saturday Night Live and Eugene Levy was like literally the biggest comedies of the late nineties and early two thousands was American Pie. And he was like a staple, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. And then it's you get into great. Christmas movies, right? With Home Alone, which are two exactly. like the biggest Christmas movies of all time, which are beloved. And who do you have there? So, so yeah. thank you, CBC, for giving such a <laughs> yeah, upshot so, comics a chance. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, more accurate would be, in, in my opinion, something like a Letterkenny, right? Which yes. is, and, and it, like, you know, some of the comedians uh, that, that were on that show, uh, like Tra- sure K. Trevor. K. Trev, yeah, yeah. You, you actually traveled with some of those guys. Oh and yeah, performed with those guys, with, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, you would like that was that's probably a little bit more accurate to what would be a a homegrown show. Exactly. Yeah, and it's yeah. great. Trailer Park Boys, another right. good example. Right, just like a homegrown show that kind of has kind of made some headway in the U.S. Yeah, those are just actual Canadian comics or Canadian actors that hit it big. Yeah. But those are really the only two examples I can think of, you know, like, don't get me wrong, Corner Gas did very well. And I love Corner Gas. I love Brent Butt. Like I, I literally 10 years ago, Corner Gas, I owned all of the DVDs. I loved them to death. It was I was obsessed with it. Right. Yeah. But even that is a good example of Canadian TV always taking the safe way out. Right. Like you see the Corner Gas animated. And mm-hmm. I haven't watched it. I'm sure it's very funny. I mean, it's still Brent Butt, so I'm sure it's great. Yeah. But this is what we're doing now, right? It's like, oh, well, this show worked. Let's animate it. Or like, yeah. here's an idea that we know will will have traction. And it's so Which, interesting. Yeah. I mean, because the two industries that that we've already talked about, the your your starting industry in music and then comedy, they've they've all done the same thing, right? The 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 measure of greatness for music was always if they made it down in the states. And if a band was able to stay here for a long period of time and be successful, that was considered amazing. And we love them. They, they became even more beloved, like a tragically hip or, 100%. you know, a rush because they didn't necessarily quote unquote sell out, which yeah. to be honest with you, I don't really like that word. I think it's just understanding your, your options, but yeah. how then do you as a comedian who's now been doing this for how how long would you say that you've been a comedian for? I, well, I start. I would full on say that I started comedy September first, two thousand eight. That's when I moved from Grand Prairie to Edmonton to pursue it. Okay. So I've been doing comedy for a little over twelve years now. However, I've been making a living at it for coming up on four years. Okay. So, but yeah, like I've been all into comedy for twelve years. Okay. So then, so then what? So forgive me for sounding crass, but what possesses you to not go down to the States? What, what, what draws you to stay within Canada and build your show, build your brand and become success within a system that clearly 
doesn't really pay, doesn't really benefit that comedic talent. Well, who knows? In all honesty, dude, I was even looking into getting the paperwork that it would require for me to go work in the US. And I think that I still might do that when this pandemic and shit's all over. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pricey and you do need to spend time getting your foot in the door. So I would need to go and make no money the first time I went and toured there to kind of prove to all these independent clubs and stuff like that, that I'm funny. And then I'd probably need to go back and open and then I'd be headlining or that would be the hope. And, or, you know, and I do know a lot of American comics and have a lot of buddies and stuff that I've worked with throughout my time in stand-up. So, you know, you can get vouchers and stuff like that. So maybe it wouldn't be so bad on some things as for going and living in the States. I just never wished to be American. Like I never wished to be a part of the U S and I love America. I love mm-hmm. going there and visiting. I love going and watching baseball there. It's yeah. my favorite, yeah. but I just, it, uh, I'm fine with being Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Well with, but I mean like the, with tech, obviously COVID aside, you know, there's going to be a lot of COVID aside in this conversation. We'll, yes. we'll touch on COVID a little bit because I am curious to see, you know, how it's kind of affected you being somebody who is a, uh, you know, a road comic. The world is so small traveling back and forth seems to be so much more easy and so much more doable now than it was even 10, 15 years ago, unless you were like a, a business person. So, I mean, you could essentially live here and and travel down in the States. Relatively. And that's a goal of mine is I really yeah. do wish to uh, start touring a little bit more internationally. Okay. I know friends and stuff that work in Australia, Vietnam and wow. Asia. And, and I've got these contacts, right? And I have good friends comedian friends that I've given work to that have said, Hey, listen, I'm, I can't help you here, but if you're ever in, you know, wherever in Asia or whatever, like I can help you out. So this is a goal of mine and I do wish to do this. And this was something I was getting much closer to doing and then pandemic aside, right? (laughs) Well, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's something I want to pick your brain about is, uh, is the pandemic and how it's kind of affected you. Um, But before I just had one other quick comment to make, and going down to the States or going international, for instance, it sounds to me like you kind of have to reinvent yourself again. You kind of have to not start a hundred percent from scratch, but you're starting from need to be paid, Chris. Yes. Dude, yeah. That, so that's, that's, <laughs> that's not the most motivating thing in the world, right? Like I know people are motivated by different things, but for you, somebody who has reinvented themselves by my count, at least three times, you've probably, you're probably up to 10 or 15 in your own yeah. mind, but like, that's, is that a motivator for you to, to, to go, go international and, and reinvent yourself again or, or, or prove that you're worthy of the time? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, the challenge and the adventure that comes along with that would be right up my alley. You know, it's one of the most fun things about touring. I love the adventure of it. I've seen more of this country than 99.9% of Canadians. I truly feel confident saying that. I have been to every province. I've been to every territory. I've seen Whitehorse. I've been up to Dawson City. I've seen Yellowknife. Toured from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, to Vancouver Island. Played Victoria. Like I, I have done it all. North to south, east to west. And man, I feel so grateful to have had that opportunity. It's the greatest part about stand-up comedy. And I've met so many amazing people and have so many friends all across the country in scenes you wouldn't even imagine have comedians in, you know, like New Brunswick has a great little scene. Like there's just, there's just such a cool camaraderie 
to comedy, to being crazy enough to actually pursue this, that whenever you're around comics, it's the best part of the job. It's that's a, that's amazing. It has to be a benefit too to go to those different places to find those different people and see those different perspectives because being in one location is great and it's comfortable and I think everybody has a you know want and a desire for that comfort. But for you to be able to expand your horizons, do you think that that's expanded your your comedy as well? Just that I, just I by think default? it's expanded my it's expanded my life view in all honesty. I mean, we're going to take a little bit of a left turn here, but, you know, in the last year, especially, it just feels like everyone is so divided and so uh, polarized with the way their opinions are, especially when you're online, it, it feels like you're drowning in it sometimes, you know, yeah. like it's pretty all encompassing at points, but it's very reassuring to have gone to all these places and realized, you know what, Canada is not as divided as everyone thinks. Mm. Everyone is the same in this country. Most of us have almost all the same values. Everyone is trying to just get through and have fun on the weekend, and pay their mortgage and make sure their families looked after and save up enough for some vacation, and, you know, see a little bit of the world or whatever their goals are. For the most part, Canadians are pretty united on that front. And it's almost toxic how people have started to view people who vote differently than they do as the enemy, which is just so insane. I mean, I think having one party you stick with all the time is insane anyways, but we can delve into that another time. But yeah. uh, whenever, man, because I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> like, I just think it's so crazy that it, it's not sports. You don't have to pick a team and die with it. Okay. Like, there's no reason we're going down with the ship. Get off. And point your finger at them and make them pay by voting them out or whatever. That's right. But I, I tour everywhere. And so you see this wide range of Canadians and, you know, sometimes the West has a lot of animosity for the East and Ontario in general, because they feel like they're not being well represented. And at times it's true. It's one thing that got me really upset about the whole Wexit movement. And I don't know how much you heard about that, but there's I haven't, Alberta. So there's an Alberta separatist movement that's kind of, and it's existed all my life, but it's definitely boiling to the top a little bit more recently. It's very frustrating as a very proud Albertan to see because they truly view it like the only way that they can be heard is to leave. And that's not the case. Like, I really do think that uh, the biggest thing that Alberta should be rallying for is, is, is more members of parliament, you know, that we should have more representation. And yes, it is frustrating as someone from the West to look how the system's set up and to know that per population, Quebec has twice the amount of representation. And that's another reason why there's so much animosity between Alberta and Quebec is that Alberta feels like it's not being properly represented and it's not. However, like Quebec is not the enemy. Like, go to Quebec. You think people there are just like feed up? Oh, it's so great to be working off the equalization payments of Alberta. Oh, it's such a joy here. Like these <laughs> these Alberta roads. Like you know, it, no, <laughs> it's a struggle right across the country for everybody. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So your so your feel is that everybody is 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 on the same page because everyone has their own struggles to deal with as well. Like not, not one place is, is living high on the hog. There's not. And I mean, there is that view of Alberta, right? That we're the redneck, yeehaw, oil, mm -hmm. big money, big trucks. And there is truth to that. Mm -hmm. But Alberta's really been struggling the last mm -hmm. 10 years. There's like been some, and that's the problem with a boom and bust economy is 
live by the sword, die by the sword. So when things are rough in Alberta, things are rough in Alberta, yeah. you know, like, and everything is so tied to oil and gas that when natural gas prices go down, Grand Prairie's hurting. When oil prices go down, Fort McMurray and, and the rest of Alberta, like we hurt and people stop consuming and you know like there's just we're all tied together mm-hmm. and so like there's just this animosity within the country that i i think has grown in time and it actually touring has alleviated that a little bit for me because i still see the big picture and can still be like you know what like we're being ridiculous we're fighting over nothing i i love first of all the reassurance that uh, of somebody who who hasn't traveled nearly as much as you have in, within our own borders and uh so it's re- it's really reassuring to hear that that perspective from you in that we're we're not as you know heading down a, a horrible path as yeah. we're led to believe but i do 100% agree with what you say in terms of representation um, I think that this is part of the conversation that I've been having with a lot of people about, you know, systemic racism and so forth, which is, yeah. is uh, you know, obviously a very, it's a very hot button topic now. It's not like this is a new thing, of course, you know, people are just opening their eyes to it a little bit more. But when, when I talk to people about it, I don't understand what systemic racism is, it's a matter of all you have to do is take a look at who's actually running the entire show, right? And if the people that are running the entire show are not a fair representation of the people that you're actually there to apparently serve and, 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 you know, protect and, and, yeah. uh, and govern, then how the hell are you going to have any kind of diversity of ideas and understanding of what different people are going to go through and different people's perspectives, right? So I totally agree with you. Don't hate on Quebec or don't hate on these other provinces. Just maybe do a better job to get yourself more representation, right? And But that that's kind of where we are at as a society. And I understand that it's not as easy as just being, well, like I'm from Alberta, so give me some seats. It takes some time to undo the yeah. things that have been there for years and years and years. But I think that's the reason why these types of things are important, these conversations that you have with people to just let them know and kind of get your voices out there as to, well, let's, make a little bit of change let's make some noise because clearly there needs to be uh you know different ways to think about this stuff man the the way that you did it for 150 years or hundreds of years just it, it doesn't, isn't working anymore it's not yeah. working anymore it's not working anymore and that's where i kind of think covid provides an opportunity uh to, yes. to start taking a look at some of these systems that clearly have been on cruise control for a very long time and uh and now the whole you know, the, the, the globe essentially has been forced to stop and, and take count of what the hell, you know, is working, what isn't working, where is money being levied. But I am curious to know in terms of COVID, how the hell has this affected you as being a comic or as a professional who... I mean, I'm going to get negative here. It's crippled me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I have lots of friends who tell me that I'm the one who has been affected the most that they know, like, you know, like all my work is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, every time there's a lockdown, it's starting over. And it's funny, like I might, sorry, I know you caught me looking down at my phone here. Oh, okay. It looks like they're going to announce a lockdown here starting tomorrow in Alberta. Oh, so shit. sorry. To hear that, mean, man. Well, what do you do? Here's the yeah. thing. Like, obviously public safety is number one. And I totally hope that everyone's parents are fine and everyone's grandparents are fine. And, and I, when I go out, and I'm playing shows. I always mask up. I am very cognizant of 
being socially distant and to get in and get out and try to encourage people to do the same. And it, it, it's really tough because honestly, Chris, I do feel like probably the best thing that we can all do is to limit going out, right? To try and just without a lockdown circuit break this thing. But I don't think enough people are, we're all in hard positions, right? Like financially, man, I'm very grateful that I'm being helped out with the $900 every two weeks CRB shit that I, you know, as a self-employed person, it's the first time I've ever seen a government that has looked after a self-employed person. Right. That doesn't you happen. Know, like that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. So I am very grateful, but man, I haven't lived like this since I was in college, you know, like, it's oh, just geez. like, it's not a lot of money and I'm not, I'm fine. Right. Like I'm fine. Mm -hmm but it is tight. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's really hard when I'm offered $400 to go close a show to not just go close the show, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm in the building for two hours. I'm as safe as I can. I, I abide by all the rules. And this is where the service industry is in the same position. And this is why you look at these lockdowns and it's, it's devastating to so many people. And it's why there's such a large group of people that are against them. But then there's also this, this truth to the whole thing that we probably should have locked down earlier. Like we probably should, like, especially here in Alberta, man, like our ICUs at 95% full, like, think about that. Like we're at literally emergency state here. Like it is getting scary in Alberta. And it's because two weeks ago or like 10 days ago, the premier came out and was like, okay, classes in gyms are closed. So gyms are allowed to be open, but they need to be super like, like mm -hmm. my two-person gym, right? Uh, <laughs> very exclusive. <laughs> very exclusive, yeah. So, and then restaurants close at 10 p.m. That was what they did 10 days ago. And 10 days ago, the truth is, man, they should have just fucking locked us down and ended this, Yeah. right? So now we're pushing it into December. We're going to be locked down over Christmas. There's no doubt in my mind that that's not happening. How can you allow a bunch of people to gather over Christmas? It, it's just asking for our January to be a nightmare. Yes, exactly. So. I totally agree with you on that. I was just saying the other day uh, that I'm really interested to see what happens to the numbers at end of January or end of December into January, mm -hmm. because now that you've kind of, you know, given people an opportunity to go out there and taste fresh air, um, you know, and, and I don't think that the, I'm just speaking for Ontario. I don't think that the increase in numbers here has been because you've allowed people to get back to a little bit of normalcy. I don't think that that's no. just the default. This is just the result of having a, a virus that you don't have a vaccination for, and that is easily transmittable. That's it period. Mm -hmm. Of course, as soon as you open up the opportunity for someone to go outside, you increase the opportunity for it to spread. That's just yeah. common sense. But if you think that the numbers are just going to continuously fall off in the holiday seasons, I think you're joking. I think yeah, you're joking absolutely. yourself, right? But um, so, okay. I think, I think the biggest problem has been stuff like religious gatherings, funerals, weddings, stuff like that, that, you know, there is a cathartic side to it that is, is truly needed for the human spirit. But right now, whew, it's not the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely not the time, but I mean, in this kind of a time where now you're, you're somebody reliant a hundred percent on being able to go out there in groups of people. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's, that's been taken away from you. Yeah. So a, has this given you pause for thought of, I got to be doing something else to supplement this income. And that being said, is there any projects that you're working on now or any thoughts or, or any things that you have in the works? So that way, not just if a pandemic comes again, which 
the likelihood mm-hmm. is small um, that, that you're thinking I've got to, I've got to expand the horizons. I can't just focus on just traveling. That is one epiphany that this pandemic has uh, so generously given me. I could have done without it, but uh, <laughs> they do say ignorance is bliss, right? And yeah, a lot of, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've always been a guy who always kind of put all of his eggs in the live performance basket. Mm-hmm. That's where ninety five percent of my income comes from is mm-hmm. the live the live side of stand up comedy. And I, I've realized that that was a big mistake, and I, I really am looking to fix that over the next year hopefully i really should have an album out a lot of comedians right now are just fine actually because they're still making sound scan checks off of sirius xm so for every play that you hear whenever you hear a joke on the radio you know that comic is getting a few pennies or whatever so the goal is to get your stuff well played and then you get paid and i i've never done that i've been too picky i even laid down an album about two years ago that i just I can't handle the audio. I was just like, I can't do that. And all my buddies are like, buddy, had you just put that out there, you'd be making bank right now, you know, like, and everyone's different on how much they get. But even my little sister, like Claire Belford, shout out to her. Very funny. She's been in Toronto for years. She actually just moved to Moncton to get out of the pandemic central there. Oh, nice. Okay. um, Good for her. But she's got stuff on XM. And she makes thousands of dollars every three months, you know, wow. and it's all American funds. So this is all stuff that, yes, I do need to start doing. I did start a podcast over this. Yes. So I've heard. Yes. And, and we are yeah. definitely. So that's uh, that is a podcast about another passion of yours. So, yes. So my podcast is called The Walk Off mm-hmm. and it's all about baseball. It's focused on the Toronto Blue Jays, but definitely not specific. In fact, I just literally did my podcast before talking to you. Oh, nice. So, yeah, we, we actually wound up talking with Kelsey Lawler. She's on the Canadian women's national baseball team. Oh, amazing. And she's playing softball at Boise State in Idaho. And her interview was great. So, like, we've always got little guests like that. Like, actually, we talked to Greg Zahn tomorrow, uh, former Blue Jays catcher and Sportsnet analyst. So, uh, yeah, it's awesome. been going good. We're slowly starting to see an increase in numbers. I mean, financially, there's no uh, reward for that yet, but hopefully we can start to get our numbers up and stuff. You know how it is starting a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> podcasting is interesting from that financial yeah. perspective, right? Because yeah. I, I don't think even some podcasters don't really fully understand <laughs> how to monetize how, how it. That, no. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's such a it's such an interesting field. But I was, I was really happy to hear that you started the podcast because you you're definitely and we're going to get into some baseball stuff uh shortly that that'll probably be like part two of this podcast because i wanted to pick your brain on some stuff uh but it was awesome to hear that and i i did get a chance to listen to some of it uh i was actually i listened to the the two-parter that you did with greg's uh greg's on oh perfect and i thought that that was fascinating fascinating stuff like just hearing his uh bold and straightforward can't like that's just the way he is um, yeah. but you and your partner Hold, holds nothing back that holds guy, yeah. nothing back. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was a fascinating one. So good job on that. And I definitely want Thanks, to, buddy. uh, to, to delve into that a little bit more for sure. So that's a, that's another one of those irons in the fire for you that you're hoping that will start paying financial d- dividends. I mean, that's the dream in all honesty, dude, I just really love talking baseball and yeah. I need it's content, right? As a comic, that was one thing that was always lacking is content, and I've always enjoyed podcasting. I've never had one that has lasted more than uh, 
nine, 10 episodes. So it's nice. I'm up to 21 episodes now. So it's feeling like I'm kind of got my feet under me and that's amazing. away we go. That's amazing. <laughs> with other comedians that I've known about, uh, or I've known and uh, met over the years, people I've worked with, people I've met through you guys, uh, you know, they supplement with commercials. They supplement with writing. They supplement with all sorts of, all sorts of different things. I'm kind of surprised to hear that you haven't gotten into the writing side of things. You're so structured and you're so, you're so well thought out. Is that some, is that another Avenue or is that something that is that's kind of, avenue it is okay. I didn't know if it was, passe should, at no, this point. it's another Avenue. I should hundred percent be investing oh. some time into, and I do really enjoy writing. I grew up going to French immersion, which was great. So technically I graduated uh, high school bilingual. And if there's oh, anyone wow. who can tell you if you're bilingual, it's the government of Canada, right, Quebec? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the one thing that was frustrating about it is my grammar and stuff in English is always lacked because of that. So that is one thing that I would need to put some actual time into once I write out stuff is to make sure that it's edited properly. Sure. Because I know I've sent some stuff into writing rooms and the response has literally been, this is great, but your format and your grammar is way off. So so at what point in time do you get to a stage where you either partner with somebody else or you hire some people to get you more gigs, a la an agent, but more somebody to just kind of expand your own horizons as to being, hey, Scotty, we should do this, we should do that. The biggest thing is other comics, mm. right? So we're kind of all in this together. And for the most part, the friendships and the connections you make within the scene help open doors and help keep you informed on what's going on and where you should be applying and who's doing what. A lot of it's just Googling. A lot of it's figuring it out over time. A lot of it is being like, oh, this is a festival that exists and I'm seeing on television. How do I apply to that? you figure it out right mm -hmm. so for the most part comics are pretty open with that sort of information there are some closed off folks sometimes when my information is my information but for the most part everyone's pretty helpful that's cool. so that's kind of the way it works in canadian comedy anyways it's all about as organic and you know grassroots as it comes because yeah. there's no infrastructure so yeah you so you guys to have to rely on each other that makes yeah. a lot of sense um, and until until you like, again, if you had credits and stuff from the US, uh, yeah, there's probably agents and stuff that would be into getting you corporate work. So and you'd still need a clean act to do that. So there is money to be made and there are agents out there. And I do have bookers like I do have people that I work with that, you know, they're out there trying to dig up corporate work or whatever it is. And when they need somebody that can do this amount of time clean for this amount of money. I'm that guy, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm the guy who, no, I'm not going to cost you five grand, but uh, I'll get the job done for, you know, a third the price. Sure. <laughs> My, which benefits everybody. Right. 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 So yeah. now you've been on the road a lot. Um, we've already mentioned our mutual friend, Neil W. Rhodes. Uh, shout out. I, I, I picked his brain a little bit as to some Scotty stories that maybe he gave me a little bit of insight because he's, <laughs> he knows you a hell of a lot better than I do. <laughs> yeah. And so, okay. so I, so I was, you have some Intel here. Well, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to share some of these things. He just gave me little tidbits of information and, um, 
he was like, maybe ask him about this, maybe ask him about that. But one of the things that I, I wanted to ask, and this is going into, you know, stories from the road and, and your experiences yeah. and so forth. Apparently, one of the stories that he really enjoys every time he hears it is the one where uh, you started a fight between uh, two comedians. <laughs> and he never gets tired of hearing this story. And uh, as soon as he said that, I was I was intrigued. And I was wondering if you would uh, indulge us in, in, in sharing what that story okay. actually was. So this, this, one of the things that I find the most humorous on the planet is if I can get a little piece of information that I know bothers somebody and just like twist it just a little bit at the most inopportune time, right? Like I just watching people squirm or just get upset over something that I know that I'm the one pushing the button has always, and my siblings will attest to this. They hated it growing up. Like it's just, and I don't know, it's a sick sadistic thing. I, I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't revel in it, but, but you are, I mean, I could like, people, I am, can, I'm, people I'm, can hear the audio. Just, just thinking about this story actually just makes me like laugh so hard. <laughs> I love so it. We were in, we were in Windsor, Ontario with some like really funny comics. I was with Dave Merhej, who actually it's funny. Like I'm just watching Rami right now on Hulu. So shout out Amazing. to Dave. Dave's he doing big stuff, man. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Uh, Alex Pavone, another good buddy. He's living in New York right now. And then Pat McDonald. And he's actually got a great podcast to check his stuff out. Um, so Dave and Neil are way up ahead right now. And the three of us, Pat, Alex, and I, are kind of wandering up the street drunk behind him it's like two in the morning it's after the show we've already picked up donair so it's this point of the night right and alex and pat have been arguing all night like they're just at each other like an old married couple it is hilarious and so now i've gathered information from their fights over the last three hours right so like now i'm like poking at each of them and pat was so mad he had kind of dropped back and so I kind of dropped back with him and I was like, buddy, you just got to get this off your chest. Like if I was you, Alex is right there. You're not going to eat the rest of your donair. We're both not just throw it at him. Right. <laughs> and over the next 20 seconds or so, I talked him into throwing this donair at Alex. So he throws this donair at him and he gets sauce on him. And man, Alex is so Italian and he's just going off about all this sauce. I can't believe you've got sauce on me. How could you be so disrespectful? This is some bullshit. And then they decide they're going to fight. So now it's like, you know, downtown Windsor and these two guys, and they're just little guys. And they're just like throwing haymakers at each other, missing completely. Nobody's actually fighting. Like it's, but anyways, so that's kind of how that ended. But yeah, all of them are like, the uh, next day they're like i can't believe you egged us on to that <laughs> <laughs> oh so they were wise to it they they knew oh, they, who the they, they kind of over time they kind of came wise to yeah <laughs> they they pieced who, it together that's stuff. amazing well i appreciate you sharing that and and yeah. that was that <laughs> there for for mr neil w Rhodes, and uh, hopefully the rest of the audience um but i, I do want to segue over to the podcast uh one of the things that uh, you have always been passionate about since I've known you and obviously probably a lot longer than that has been baseball. So to yes. hear that you started a podcast just made total sense to me because I wanted to just talk to you about baseball in general, but this actually gives us even more ammunition. Uh, so I guess the first question is let's go back to the beginning. What was the, the catalyst for your love so for baseball? I first started watching baseball around six or seven and it was because my dad was so into it. And like most Canadians, it was almost like you were looking for something to watch during hockey's off season, right? right? 
And my dad really was into the Blue Jays. He was really into the Expos. It was probably about 88, I would say, is when I kind of started watching baseball. And baseball's tough as a kid because it can be very slow moving. And it's, it, it's to truly enjoy baseball, you almost have to understand the chess game going on behind the scenes, you know, because there is a lot of thinking and a lot of managing that goes into a game of baseball. And so that was kind of over my head, but I just really enjoyed watching sports with my dad. It was the one time where my angry dad was just a fun loving drinking dad, right? Like it was like, all right, it's a game. Life is good. And I saw it was tough not to pick up on that energy and kind of get right into it. And then, I mean, truthfully, you could not pick a better time in Blue Jays history to be a kid starting to get into baseball because the Blue Jays won in 92. They won in 93. So I was 10 and 11 years old. In fact, sports kind of lied to me. Because I'm a Flames fan too. So the, the Flames won in 89. And then I, I, I just, as an 11-year-old boy, I just thought, oh, you just invest all sorts of emotional energy into your favorite sports team. And then it pays off huge almost every year, right? And here we are 26 fucking years later. <laughs> oh, the plate of being a sports fan, eh? Oh, man. I feel for Leafs fans. Oh. Neil W. Rhodes, he's I like... If he he better not die before the Leafs win a cup. Like, <laughs> come on, Maple Leafs. He's one you of the like, most. You got like thirty years. <laughs> He's one of the most patient people that I've ever oh, known, man. and and to still just hang in there at you know after all this time and but that that's the thing that I've that's always marvel I've always marveled at with you and him is the love for baseball is so deep that you guys you guys listen and watch and and oh, uh, and invest. We're ridiculous. In, it's it, like. Not just the 162 uh, game schedule, but the, oh, the great food game. Holy yeah. shit! <laughs> and you guys are listening to it on the radio. Like, I mean, I I remember back in the day watching baseball, and baseball was my first sports love uh, as well. But I, I I honestly I can't do it now. Just I just don't have either the attention span or the interest, or it's just it's there's so much the game time has changed best. a lot too. Well, that's what um, I'm curious to know yeah. is that you know I remember sports like a baseball back in the day. And I remember what that was like. And now it just seems to be so much different. And I'm sure that this intersects with the podcast, but analytics is such a massive part of sports in general, yes. but I find it specifically in baseball uh, and, and already statistical league. And now yeah. you're getting into analytics and I'm, I'm finding through watching the odd game here and there. And I, I don't watch as many as much as you do. So that's why I, I want to know what your thoughts are on it. And then listening to the pundits uh, speak of, of analytics. And of course, yeah. then you get the old school guys talking about yeah. how analytics is ruining the game. I wouldn't go that far, but I am curious to know, like when it comes to analytics, do you think that it is, sapping the flow and creativity out of a sport like baseball or even sports in general, if you want to go that far. Well, I think it's a double-edged sword because when it comes to baseball, it is the long game and always has been. It's a 162-game season. It is a grind. These are guys that are playing a game almost every single day, five, six, seven times a week. They're on the field. And there is a mental side to baseball that probably doesn't exist in a lot of sports. And so when you come to analytics and the data, it's always been there. 
And this is one thing that is like, even when we talked to Greg Zahn, we had the, the pleasure of talking with Anthony Telford. He's a pitcher uh, with the Expos back in the 90s. And one of the things that he brought up was that nobody would shun data. Like it's just become so much more comprehensive. So ball players have always strived for that little edge because it is such an individual game within a team sport. Whereas, and when I say that, I mean like, it's pitcher versus batter it's batter versus fielder it's fielder versus runner you know like it all breaks down into a bunch of little plays so when you can look at a, a at a chart and kind of look at a hitter and be like okay this guy hits 85% of the balls that he puts the bat on to the left hand side of the field and this is where the shift came into play and this is a tampa bay rays baby birth child there joe madden and they started to figure out if you shift in let's say this scenario where the guy's always hitting it to the left side you know you shift the second baseman over behind the you know with the shortstop there you move the the first baseman almost to second base and then you just play the averages and that works because I mean, if you look at the stats, obviously if you're a great hitter, you're hitting one out of three. So Mm -hmm. now you kind of take that and of the one out of three, 85% to the left, like the math of that is brilliant. And there's Mm -hmm. something to be said for figuring that out. And it's helped small market teams. That's who it's helped. It's helped the Tampa Bay Rays. It has helped the Oakland athletics. It has helped the Kansas city Royals, right? These teams that don't have the money, that some of these top teams do to go out and get free agents. They need to develop their own talent. So on that side of things, I think analytics have been great. And I think that they've been very important and a very uh, rooted part of the game since day one. Where it starts to get a little ridiculous is where you stop believing in the players and you stop letting a horse be a horse. And when I say that, I mean, like, let's take just for example, I'm probably getting too in depth here for everyone listening, but I'm a big baseball nerd. I can't help it. Right. So (laughs) take game six of the world series. Blake Snell was the Cy Young award winner in 2018 for the Tampa Bay Rays. He is their ace. He is their horse. He's the guy you want on the mound when you are up against the wall. Right. And they were, they were down three, two in the series. They needed to win that game. He pitched six innings. Two hits, 75 pitches, I think he was at, and they pulled him. And they pulled him because analytically it said that that was the move to do. But part of the excitement as a fan is watching the guy who maybe against the odds pulls it out, Mm -hmm. right? And so there is an argument to be made. Do you let your horse be the horse in the most instrumental part of the game, in the most instrumental time of the season, in the playoffs, back against the wall? Do you let your guy be the guy? You know, it's, it's, it's like if the bulls looked at statistics for Michael Jordan back in the day and was like, you know what, you kind of blowing four shots of the last four games, you know, we're going to, we're going to go to Pippen. We're going to go to somebody else. No, nobody does that. The bulls never fucking did that. And this is the thing with baseball that has lost them fans. I think is that they've leaned so heavily on analytics that it has eliminated the star factor of the game and this is something that baseball has struggled with for years you bring up the name mike trout nobody knows who he is everybody knows who lebron james is Mm -hmm. right like and this is the equivalent Mm -hmm. i mean lebron james is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time mike trout right there arguably the greatest baseball player of all time and 
it's not even really that arguable. Like no, he probably is. Not, right? yeah, like, he probably not is the greatest. Mm-hmm. Even hockey, Connor McDavid. Everybody knows who McDavid is. Everybody knows who Sidney Crosby is. So baseball has a real marketing issue and baseball has an issue with, with it's like Canadian comedy. It's like rise your stars up, but they can't do it. They get in their own way and they get in their own way because of the old school style of thinking, right? All the unwritten rules in baseball mm. create this culture where you're seen as a showboat. If you show any sort of emotion, you're seen as somebody who's rubbing the other's face team in it for celebrating. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. I mean, the bat flip is a perfect example. Every Toronto fan in the world will know what I'm talking about. Right. Absolutely. Biggest hit of his career. Seventh inning wins the game pretty much. It wasn't a walk up, but it sure felt like it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he flips his bat and he's jumping around. Biggest hit of his career. And he wound up needing to take a shot in the face from Roughnet Odour the next season as compensation for this. Right. Because it was felt like he had done them wrong by celebrating Mm -hmm. so as a fan wasn't that exciting though to watch that kind of enthusiasm like every canadian out there was jumping around and excited and had a love for baseball again and this is what the mlb fights against right like it's 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 an epidemic it's an epidemic in baseball it's so interesting because uh you know nfl went through this phase where they eliminated the touchdown celebration it was an unsportsmanlike conduct. It was an unsportsmanlike penalty. So you spike the ball, you celebrate with your teams, you do all that kind of stuff. I think spiking was okay, but you could not celebrate as a team. Yeah. And and fans hated it. Players yeah. would take the penalties every once in a while because, you know, it's it's hard to score a touchdown in, in the NFL. You know, you, you should be able to celebrate. And if you every- learned a choreographed dance, you better be able oh to do it. Oh my God, are you Let kidding me? Yeah, if that person knows how to do the worm, if they can do the, the running man, you know, in, <laughs> in synchronicity yeah. with 10 other guys, that's amazing. Let them do it. Um, it failed. It was a failed experiment. And, and now they brought it back and they brought it back with even more bells and whistles where they have the camera set up in, you know, the end zone. And you can actually go and perform in front of that camera. People yes. love to see that kind of stuff. It's celebrations. As a kid, you play sports because, you know, it's escapism. It's it's celebrating. It's fantasizing. And and like you said, it's all uniting. That's, it's, <laughs> it's supposed yeah. to be. It's yeah. supposed to be. And this is the thing that I get I get concerned about in terms of, you know, analytics and, you know, c- couple that with the unwritten rules. And like you said, the trajectory of baseball in, in and of itself, that if you have your manager before the game talking to the GM and they orchestrate, they orchestrate a game plan for pitching in, in you know, in particular, cause that's yep. the area that I think is like is a pre-planned game pre-planned. Yeah, pre-planned. For sure. So you have no feel, you don't even have the ability, probably maybe a handful of coaches, maybe two or three coaches right now have the ability to call the game as they feel it. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them, they just have to go with the game plan. So do you think that this is the future? So sports leagues are copycat leagues. Mm -hmm. You see something that works, everyone starts to copy it. Mm -hmm. And I think right now for baseball, we are witnessing some real shifts, whether it's forced from the MLB or whether it's just as a small market team, this is the way you, you feel is the route you need to take 
So I think analytics are here to stay. I do think that the pendulum has swung too far the one way. And I think that there will be a little bit of a correction. I think we will need to see a manager. And listen, it's really interesting. I, I didn't like the, the hire, but Tony LaRusso was hired as the manager for the Chicago White Sox. This is a guy who's a Hall of Famer. He's coming out of retirement, old school as they come. This is a guy who's going to get upset. Like Tim Anderson's one of the biggest stars in baseball right now, shortstop for the White Sox, just a phenom. And he's a black man in a game that has seen constant uh, decrease in black players over the years, right? Like it was something like 21% back in the nineties and it's at 8% right now. Oh, so really? for there to be, no uh, it's another problem with baseball right wow. now that they're trying to fix. So um, and it's again, it's because the kids are watching basketball and football, football right? So all, all the young kids growing up that are black are playing basketball and football, right? Mm -hmm. It's like Canadian kids are all playing hockey and it's because it's just the way it is, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. so baseball is trying to fight against this. And again, he's Tim Anderson is incredible to watch. Great with the bat, incredible speed and a ton of personality, which is just going to literally be the opposite of what Tony LaRusso is after. And I'm not saying that a 76 year old man can't grow and learn, but there are sayings like old dogs don't learn new tricks for a reason. Right. Yeah. So I don't mean to put like a, a preconceived notion on that. This can't change, but it does seem weird. But again, I think baseball struggling right now to try and find that happy medium between like you said, going with your gut, right? Like where you used to see it from managers all the time where they're like, this guy's due or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to stick with my guy. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that's not a thing. It's pre-planned. They haven't decided this guy's going this long. This guy's going this long. If things go this way, you know, it's become much more methodical and it does take a little bit of the excitement out of the game. So it is a, it is a problem where it's tough. I know I just talked with um, uh, strength and conditioning coach, for the Calgary Cardinals, Matt Wild, he works with the under 15s. Okay. So he's working with 13, 14 year old kids. And he was saying that there's a huge love of baseball amongst the youngsters, but they don't watch major league baseball. Mm. So they're going out and they're playing the game, but then they're not watching, which is crazy to me because yeah. as a kid, the whole reason I played sports was because I was watching them and got into it and was like, Oh, I want to be involved in this. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I find intriguing about the whole aspects of, you know, feeling out the game as a coach and so forth. And like you were talking about earlier, you know, going back to the, the last dance, uh, you know, documentary and, and yeah. talking about Jordan, it's, it's not even so much in regular season games for baseball, you know, playing the numbers and, and playing it safe and getting your victories. Because as we all know, as people who have watched sports their entire lives and have participated in sports, playoffs is way different than regular season. Different so a different animal altogether. And so the analytics will probably tell you that by playing this person that way, you're going to get this result more often than not. But in the big moments, you know, when it's game seven of the world series and, you know, the count is, you know, the full, you got full count, yeah. you got a runner on second, you know, you're feeling it out more. And those, those superstar players, they're the ones that are going to take advantage of those moments, but that's what we want to see. We want to yeah. see that person on person. I'm trying to be, um, trying to change my vernacular a little bit. Uh, mono a mono is, is yeah. really what I'm after there, but yeah. you, you want to see that, that, contest 
in those vital moments, right? And that's that's where I kind of hope that it comes back a little yeah. bit uh, around. But tell me, in terms of the podcast, so you're you're up to 21 yeah. episodes with uh, with the uh, with Walk Off, and you've yeah. got that with your uh, with your co-host. And, and what's your co-host name? Yeah, Adam Mack is Adam. Uh, who I'm doing that with. He's a fellow comedian. He's based in Edmonton. Really funny guy, up and coming. I toured with him in March just before the shutdown. Actually, we were literally on the road together. We were sitting in Regina waiting for the show to start. The TVs were up above the the bar. And that was the day that it like the the thing comes up and it's like U.S. declares state of national emergency. Tom Hanks has coronavirus. NBA cancels season. I'm like, can we turn these TVs off? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's feeling like laughing right now. Oh my God. That's terrible. So yeah. you guys were, were traveling. To, so how did this podcast come to be? And, and exactly what are you guys hoping to do with the podcast? So in all honesty, it came to be with just Adam and I were on the road together talking baseball. And he was just like, man, I really enjoy talking baseball with you. You should do a podcast. I would totally listen. And then he bugged me. He bugged me for months. He's like, when are you going to do this podcast? And then, you know, May hit, you know, and at this point, I was feeling about as down as possible. I was just like, we're still in lockdown. I can't even book comedy. I'd had thousands and thousands of dollars cancel and was just really low. And he got a hold of me and he was like, hey man, if I produce this, like if I do the technical side, will you run the ball podcast with me? And I was like, absolutely, let's do it. So kind of came from there, a little bit of motivation on my co-host part and- yeah, we're 21 episodes in now. That's amazing, man. Well, like I said, I've had a chance to listen to a couple of episodes that you've done, and I'm looking forward to listening to more because, uh, you know, as I said to you before, like you're my you're my baseball guy, right? Like I, I don't <laughs> if I need to know something about baseball, I was going to come to you, but now that you actually have the show on top of it, you know, I'm hoping to be able to package that to the audience and say you know, this guy knows what the hell he's talking about. He's talking to top-notch people and, yeah. you know, he's getting this information out there, which is amazing. So like, how, how do you determine the people that you want to talk to in terms of these the interviews? people who say yes. So uh. I've just kind of been <laughs> carpet bombing emails out to all of uh, the guys that I'd like to chat with. And hopefully I land some more. I've got some really good guests coming up, you know, like got a scout with the Baltimore Orioles that I'm interviewing next week. Uh, like I said, Greg's on tomorrow, some apparel. So there's a, it's called Prairie Fire and they're a bat company in Alberta. So mm-hmm. we've, we're talking to the guy who runs that, you know, so we're, we're trying to over the off season kind of delve into the behind the scenes side of baseball a bit. And that's amazing. Whoever will talk to us, will talk to us. So. That's if you awesome. wind up figuring anyone out there who needs, uh, you know, who's baseball savvy, send them my way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I want to hear more because I, I know that you're going to ask uh, intriguing questions and you've got a, a good mind for it. And you can you can actually, listening to you talk to, to Zani there, uh, you're going toe to toe. It's like you guys were just good friends, just chatting. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was really intriguing because you could see how comfortable he was. You could see how, you could hear how comfortable he is just talking about yeah. baseball and just talking in general it's great yeah. it's that's phenomenal so keep up the good work with that man Thanks, that's, buddy. Uh, i really, really look forward that. to seeing where that goes um and i'm gonna end on one thing so this little birdie that i spoke to about getting some inside track and <laughs> and you know some inside knowledge um i wanted to have a little bit of baseball something to kind of throw out there so that way you could kind of elaborate on it and one of the things that he had mentioned which 
he mentioned a few things like the Bobby Bonilla contract. And, and I, I know yeah. that contract pretty well, which is, is an amazing story. Yeah. But he did mention another contract that I don't really know where it's going, but it's the Vernon Wells contract. He said, ask oh, him about the yeah. Vernon Wells contract, but oh, yeah. I don't personally know as a Jays fan about this. So would you tantalize me and the audience with a, with a closing story about this Vernon yeah, Wells so, contract? So anytime you bring up the Vernon Wells contract as a Jays fan, you're basically bringing up the one albatross of a, of a contract that was just terrible. You know, like Vernon Wells came out of the gate. He was just a young stud in the game. Honestly, like he was putting up numbers. He was probably, I think he was like 24. And for the first time in a long time, the Jays spent some major money and they signed him. I think, I don't remember the numbers, so don't quote me, but it's something like five years hundred million dollars, 20 million a season. Mm. They signed him. And then he never, from that point on, he was terrible. <laughs> like literally from the second he signed that contract, he was half the player he was. And so whenever you hear a Jays fan bring up Vernon Wells, it's always in a negative context. <laughs> and it, the, the contract, especially it's normally like a warning if they hear you know, a rumor about the Jays trying to sign somebody and they're like, well, we don't need a Vernon Wells. We don't. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the big thing too, with the Vernon Wells contract is because it was so much money, it handcuffed management to sign other players. So that was not only was he getting paid all this money, but that he was the excuse as to why they couldn't go out and get other great players. So yeah, there's some animosity there towards old Vernon. <laughs> so that's a little tidbit for, for people who are, you know, if you're at a, a dinner Zoom party, because I guess yeah. all the dinner parties are Zoom now, uh, yeah. and you start talking about baseball and you hear like a contract and it's being talked about in a negative context, you could just yeah. drop that little gem out that's there. And go, right. Oh my God, not another Vernon Wells contract. <laughs> Uh, Scotty, man, this is, this has been, uh, this has been amazing. Um, tell, tell people. Buddy, where, this was so fun. Thanks I, for having me on. Hey, right? listen, man, thanks for being on. I, you know, I, I know that things right now are, you know, changing directions for you, but it mm-hmm. sounds like you have some, some things on the go, which, which I love. Where can people find out more about you? Where can people, you know, remind them of the podcast, remind them of your, your locations? Absolutely. You can add me on Instagram, the Belf. Uh, the podcast is available everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So Spotify, Apple, Google play, all the good stuff there, uh, on Twitter, you can follow me at the Belf seven. You can also follow the podcast where I do all, if you're into baseball and you like to just tweet while you watch the game, I'm right there with you. You can follow, uh, at walk off podcast at walk off podcast. And I'll throw a link obviously into the show description so people can find that. And, uh, you know, I, I say, give it a listen guys and girls, you know, if, if you, uh, if you're a fan of baseball or, you know, if you're at that stage with baseball, that it's kind of a, a confusing relationship and you don't really know if you want to continue on. I find that this is a great way to, to stay apprised of what's happening in baseball because you guys drop a lot of knowledge, some stats, and you have some amazing guests. Uh, so I'm really looking forward Thanks, to, to see what you do and with if, that. And if you're hesitant to jump in, just jump in. It's yes. all, it's, it's, it's week to week. So you don't need to do back episodes, just jump in. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So there's there no go. overarching storyline. There's no overarching storyline. <laughs> <laughs> 
Scotty, my friend, it was great to hear your voice. It was awesome to see your face. Um, it was great to kind of get your perspective and see the rise of who I knew and, and see yeah. where you are right now. And, you know, Hey, listen, this, this COVID crap, you know, we'll get it over with soon and hopefully get you back on track so you can start to uh, attain the, the goals that you were, you were already uh, achieving, but you have, I can't wait to go to Rogers center with you again, but Oh dude, it was a great time. I love it. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely do this again, my friend. Okay. Sounds good. Take Thank care, you very man. much, Scott. You take yeah. care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.